James 5. As our kids were growing up in our home, we had a stack of uh, cheap Bibles from the book cart that we would use for family devotions. That way everybody had a copy. We weren't off looking for them. And the way devotions worked in the Graham household, it wasn't the most efficient or regular kind of an event. Um, we, had, we would read just a chapter, very simple, and I'd go around the table and pray for each individual, and it would be done, you know, five to ten minutes max. And uh, we did this any time that we had, most of the times when we'd have a sit-down meal, which for us, sit-down meal without guests there, uh, was probably anywhere from one to three times a week. I mean, that's just the way our family lived. That's our schedule and our activity. Otherwise, you just kind of grab and go all week long. But um, uh, we, we, because it wasn't regular like that, sometimes we'd go a week without having devotions. Sometimes two weeks. And... Uh, you know, sometimes a month, you know, I mean, you're away on vacation and then you get back and you don't get back in the routine. I just, you know, and so uh, every once in a while we'd be there and maybe there'd be a visitor and typically with visitors we wouldn't have devotions, but if you were with us and, and, and we just felt comfortable having that, we'd say, oh, you know what, let's, let's read the Bible. And, and there was something in the back of my mind that didn't want to do it, didn't want to read the Bible with you visiting with us especially because I would go over to that stack of Bibles and guess what would be all over those Bibles? A thick coating of dust. I mean, just, oh, it's like, okay, well, let me wipe these off as we hand these out. Welcome to Pastor Tim's house. Yeah, we have devotions, you bet. All right? So the, our Bibles were a judgment against us, and, and, you know, just, just because they weren't used. And so today we're going to look at a text that talks about your moth-eaten garments being a judgment against you. And your silver and gold with tarnish building on them being a judgment against you. How is this a judgment against you? Well, in antiquities, most people only had one complete outfit of clothing. Just the reality, okay? But if you have so many clothing, because moths don't typically sit on you and eat your clothing while you're moving around. I mean, you know, they kind of fly away. Uh, Moth eating happens when clothing is stored, unused. And so you've got so many clothes that they go unused and they get moth-eaten. Uh, likewise, your silver and your gold. When silver and gold is being used and transacted, human uh, fingers touch it and, and, and keep it polished and the oil uh, keeps it protected you know, from, from tarnish building. But when you've got gold and silver that is just sitting there unused, so long that it has tarnished, and you, and you bring that out before God when he gives account and says, tell me how you've used the wealth that I have given you. Well, I haven't. It's built some tarnish, and, and it's just been sitting there. So um, that's going to be, there's going to be a lot of perspective uh, 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 for all of us today on stewardship, but there's also a moral perspective as well, because these wealthy people were not just hoarding their wealth, but simultaneously they were neglecting the poor associates that were farming their farms. They were withholding what should have rightfully gone to benefit those farmers, those tenant farmers. And so uh, as we look at that today, um, uh, understand that, 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 this, that there's a judgment in the gold, the silver, and the clothing that is moth-eaten. Now as we look at today's text, we're in chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. Last week, we had the merchants, 
the rich merchants who were presumptuous. They were saying, go to now. Or, or, or they were saying, we're going to go to this city and we're going to buy, we're going to sell, we're going to get gain. And James says to them, you should not be talking that way. You should say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. And, and when you know to do right and you don't do it, it's sin. So last week, it sounded like he's talking to Christians, merchants, who were presumptuous. They were sinning. They were presumptuous. We're just going to go do these things. It's going to happen because we're good. <laughs> All right, and, and, and James says that is presumptuous. Now, today, he's talking to landowners. So if you think Downton Abbey, uh, that, that would be the, this, whole, this whole idea where you would have uh, dukes and duchesses because they were landowners. Uh, that predated England. That, 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 that's back here in the Roman era a, as well. And, and so these are landowners, but uh, he talks to them like they are headed for judgment. In verse number four, he talks about, or verse number three, that he says, their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That sounds like damnation in hell. So it sounds like he's talking to unsaved. Now, as I research this, I don't see that that has to be the case, that, the, that these landowners are all unsaved individuals. It might be that last week it was saved merchants who were presumptuous, and this week it's unsaved landowners who are, are headed to hell. But James is writing to the church, scattered abroad. And it could just be talking about last week was bad, and this week it is so wicked that you really ought to examine whether or not you even have Jesus Christ as your Savior. You really ought to examine whether or not you are headed for eternity with God or eternity in hell. Because your behavior and your hoarding of wealth and your heart set on wealth to, to the point that you're neglecting the poor associates around you, it is so wicked that you ought to examine your salvation, your relationship to God. Now, as we read the text, one other warning I want to give you the, to the, is this, because I talked to a lot of men recently who, when you talk to them about Jesus, in fact, I've had two men in the last two weeks, uh, you talk to them about Jesus and they're like, well, I just try to do the Ten Commandments. I just try to do good, and I hope it's good enough for God. Nowhere in this text are you going to see, if you treat the poor people right, you're going to earn your way to heaven. We don't earn our way to heaven. That's nowhere in any text in the Bible. Uh, this is talking about when you are on your way to heaven, when you are a child of God, this is how you behave. You repent from hoarding wealth, and instead you bless others. And if you aren't doing that, You've got to examine some things. So I just want to be clear because uh, there, just, there, there just seems to be an, an epidemic of misunderstanding that somehow we get to heaven by trying hard enough, being good enough, rather than by placing our faith in Jesus. So uh, just to position the text uh, that way. Let's look at James chapter one, 5, verse 1. James 5, 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury, and in self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we pray that your word would judge us. If 
Father, help us to understand the context in which this is written uh, and, and the reason it was written. But God, I pray that you would lay our hearts open before you. I pray that we would be changed to be more like our Savior, Jesus. Might we walk with you by faith in obedience to your word. And God, I pray that you would guide us carefully with wisdom and spiritual providence through our lives and through our decisions. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this first point, the, the point reads kind of roughly. I've, I've reworded it several times. But James invites the rich to cry out because they're rotten, moth-eaten, and corroded riches will be a poisonous witness against them, consuming them with fire. Verses 1 through 3. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. James's invitation, come now. That's like we saw at the beginning of verse 13 uh, last week, talking to the merchants. Come now. It's an invitation to debate. But he, he says, come now, weep and howl. Uh, he's inviting them to weep and howl because he knows they're going to weep and howl. This is like when you're playing cards with somebody and, and you know, maybe you're playing a game of Rook and somebody's counted all of the cards. They know what's in everybody's hand and they know they've got the winning hand. So they lay it out and they say, read them and weep, right? Because they know they won. Now, if they haven't won, they just look like a fool, right? <laughs> it's like, what do you mean, read them away? I got you beat five different ways here, you know. But uh, hey, they look like a fool. James is no fool. He is inviting them to weep and to howl because they will be weeping. They will be howling. Uh, the, the rich he is addressing here will one day be judged for their sin. The tarnishing of the silver and the gold is a witness against the rich. As I mentioned in... If you were to ask me, how, how, do, you know, how, does, how does tarnish witness against you? Imagine you came over to my house and you asked me, uh, Pastor Tim, do you lift weights? And I say, well, yes, I do. All right. And, uh, and, and oh, can I see them? Oh, well, they're out in the garage. And we go out in the garage and back here in this back corner behind the snowblower and a bunch of boxes. I, you know, we start moving stuff. We spend five minutes moving stuff so you can see my weights. And then when you get to the weights, there's, there's cobwebs and there's dust. Weights that are used don't grow cobwebs and dust. And so my weights now are all of a sudden witnessing against me that no, in fact, I don't lift weights. Even so, God has given you wealth. He has given you the opportunity to use that wealth. And God did not give you access to wealth to have you pile up more than you could ever need. If you think that passes for stewardship, you had better be prepared to give answer to God who gave you your wealth for many purposes, growing dust and cobwebs and tarnishes, not one of them. Today's passage is going to read like a criticism of the rich or even a criticism for being rich. It might read like it's a criticism for having riches, but that's not the case. The criticism is directed to rich people who fail to use their money faithfully. There would be plenty of application for all of us in this passage. All of us in this room will have plenty of application in this passage. 
Who is rich after all? Think in the room, who's rich? Now, after you thought that thought, let me tell you, it works a lot like, who's a political liberal? Anyone who's to my left, right? Or who, who is a religious legalist? Anyone who has higher standards, notice, anyone who has noticeably higher standards than me is a legalist, okay? Now, if that's the way you define legalist, you've got a poor definition, but that is the way most people define a legalist. Oh, he believes such and such is a sin and therefore doesn't do it, therefore he's a legalist. So how do we define who is rich? Anyone with noticeably more wealth than me is rich. Okay, is, even though we are all Americans in the year 2023, we tend not to think of ourselves as the rich. We tend to think of somebody with noticeably more than we have as rich. We are Americans after all, through and through. We not only approve of people having wealth, we admire it, we covet it. And at what point do we ask ourselves, uh, do I have enough? At what point do I have too much to where I am not exercising good stewardship, where I am not exercising faith? The corrosion of our wealth will be a testimony against uh, us in the day of judgment. It will be a testimony. Certainly the unsaved, it will be a, 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 uh, it will be a testimony against the unsaved. You need to understand that what James is saying here is he's not saying having wealth is a sin. He is saying having so much wealth that it sits around and corrodes is a sin. At what point are your needs funded for the future? And you know something? I would say this. It's not just your needs. We don't have a stingy God. I think he allows us a lot of wants. Uh, You know, I think saving for a pleasant retirement, uh, a pleasant future. You may never not live to retirement, but, but a pleasant, saving for a pleasant future, I don't think God uh, withholds that from Christians. But at what point is enough enough? And at what point, if we were to die today, would God come and go through our wealth and say, look at this, it's corroded. I gave you all of this, and what has it done? You have not funded industry. You have not helped the poor. You have not funded the gospel. For me also, it's an abundance of things. So many things that I cannot maintain them. When I have a lot of stuff sitting around and I don't have time to maintain it, I've gone too far in accumulating toys and things. Everything I own owns me. (laughs) And when I don't have enough time to keep up with it, to keep up the maintenance, much less enjoy them and use them, I have too much. The stuff is not only not fun, it's a testimony against me. I simply have too much stuff. So James is warning the rich that they have hoarded up treasure to their own judgment. Treasure that is getting moth-eating, is getting corroded. It is just self-evident that they have too much. And he warns us here, if we are treasuring up riches, uh, the riches of the world, beware that you and I are treasuring up riches in the last days. Verse number three, he says, you, uh, um, 
Verse number three, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, some people read that as these are people who are saving for their last days, saving for retirement, and somehow that's a sin. To me, that's way out of left field. I, I don't think that's what this is talking about at all. I think it's important to save for the future, for the time when you cannot work, when you will have needs. Rather, I take last days to refer to the church age as a whole. It's a theological term that we see elsewhere in the Bible. It's the final epoch of time before Jesus returns and establishes his millennial kingdom. Before this world as we know it comes to a conclusion. Yeah, there'll be a tribulation, there'll be a millennium, there's drama all through it and time involved, but it's going to wrap up and be done, this world as we know it. Hebrews 1 says, long ago, here, listen for the term last days. Long ago, Hebrews 1.1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The term last days refers to the fact that we are reaching a conclusion of human history. There have been many epochs of time. Uh, Many things to anticipate. There was a time at which mankind was looking forward to God coming to earth, to God providing propitiation for our sins. Jesus came. He did that. There was a time when mankind was looking forward to God giving His Holy Spirit a deposit in the hearts of men. He has come. He has done that. There are no more events that we are looking forward to in the future other than the coming of Jesus Christ to wrap things up and to judge the world. These are, in that sense, the last days. Now, if James is writing to believers, these landowners, he is writing in such a way as to hold our feet to the fire as believers. Uh, Look at verse 9 in next week. Uh, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Uh, In this passage, it does seem that James is holding our feet to the fire, that the judge is standing at the door. In verse number 3, we just read, your corroded silver and your corroded gold will burn your flesh like fire. These are the last days. So, are these landowners believers? Or are they unbelievers? I think they very well could be believers, and James is just holding our feet to the fire on this. Uh, the book of Hebrews does this in three places. And, 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 and in those places, a lot of people come away from the book of Hebrews saying, you can lose your salvation. That is not true. You cannot lose your salvation. Once you are in Christ, you are protected. And you can go online. Uh, We have those sermons uh, from the book of Hebrews online. You have to identify the passages. It's listed by sermon, uh, by, by, by scripture. You can see why I would disagree with that interpretation, the interpretation that you can lose your salvation. I think the book of Hebrews is just holding our feet to the fire. And the book of James here, I think he is holding our feet to the fire. That these sins of the heart, when you treasure riches to this extent that we're seeing in this passage, you really ought to examine your relationship with God Almighty at a fundamental level. These are the last days. 
one of the implications of this phrase, the last days, is that we, in this room, of all people of all history, can understand more than anyone else about God's program for this era, for this world. See, Abraham and Isaac, they did not have a completed revelation from God. Uh, the, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, King David, he obeyed God. He did not have as much information as you and I have, as much understanding. Daniel did not have as much understanding. The prophets, the apostles, even when they left their fishing and left their trades to go follow Jesus, they did not have a completed revelation when they made those decisions. Of all people throughout history, those of us who live in this era, the church age, have more information than anyone. We have more understanding of how God's plan unfolds in Jesus Christ. We are of all generations most accountable. These are the last days. And how dare you and I lay up treasure in this world in the last days? Jesus is at the door. The next event in God's timetable is for Jesus Christ to return. We best not be doing this. We need to guard our hearts. Turn, if you would, to Matthew 6, verse 19. There's just a little extended reading I want to have from Jesus here. Uh, Matthew 6, verse number 19. We will be judged for treasuring. This is a hard issue. For treasuring money above God. Treasuring money above Jesus. Look at Matthew 6, verse number 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For, and here's the issue, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is God's concern. What has your heart? We'll keep reading in a moment, but what has your heart? What excites you to your core? Verse 22, the eye of the lamp is the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, and the term hate, does not mean absolutely reject. That's like I hate chocolate ice cream. I love vanilla ice cream. Hate, love, those are comparative terms. I will be very happy with chocolate ice cream if you serve me chocolate ice cream, but I really love vanilla, all right? And so, um, uh, but, but, no, but, but God cares about where your preferences are, what your desires are. No one can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So how do you know you've chosen money over God? When your money and your stuff has so consumed your life that it sits idle, corroding from a lack of use. That's at least one warning. That's one warning sign. James warns us that it will eat your flesh like fire. You need to examine your heart. Where do you really stand? The unpaid wages of victims are crying out, and the cries of the abused have entered the ears of the Lord. In verse number 4, James chapter 5, verse number 4. Let me get there. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, 
which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That term, Lord of hosts, should scare you a little. (laughs) He's the Lord with the army behind him. The army of angelic beings. And we're not talking about Cupid dolls. We are talking about fearsome, fiery creatures that every time encountered a human being totally undid the human being just by their very presence. Uh, The cries of the poor that you have abused by fraud by being less than honest with them, their cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That should concern you. There is a profound inability of the proud and rich to sympathize with the poor. Verse 4 says they kept back their wages by fraud. Now, whether this means that the payment was delayed by fraud or permanently withheld by fraud, we do not know. The rich person's golden rule is this. He who has the gold makes the rule. He does whatever he wants. And if you don't like it, hey, sue me. Oh, wait a minute. You can't. You're poor. And we live in Rome. And Rome does not allow the poor to sue the rich because that would be gold digging. The poor would be suing the rich all the time. So in Roman society, only the rich could sue the poor because obviously the rich didn't need this poor man's money. He could take everything, and he did, and it would hardly change the landscape of his financial circumstance. Ah, but you sue dozens of poor people, and all of a sudden you can make a living off of that. And that's exactly what happened throughout history. The rich sued the poor. The poor had no recourse, no legal recourse. In antiquities, the uh, laborers typically received a day's wages for their sustenance, and it was hand-to-mouth living. You and I as Americans, we look down on this. Uh, the modern-day news report is, calls it living paycheck to paycheck. And anyone who, the, 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 the message below and beneath that is, anyone who lives paycheck to paycheck is a loser. That's the attitude of the rich. Without understanding someone's circumstance, without understanding their background, you live paycheck to paycheck, you're a loser. And there is no love, there is no sympathy behind that sentiment, and the rich can become very arrogant toward the poor. They can honestly feel like, I could never live that way. I just wouldn't. It's hand-to-mouth living is so much the case throughout history that the Torah had many commands. Many places it talked about this, but I'll just read from Deuteronomy 24. Here's God's sentiment. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy. What does it mean to oppress a hired worker? Well, it's going to get to that. Whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners. He could be a foreigner, a Gentile, who is in your land or within your towns. So it said, you shall not oppress the poor and needy. What is the opposite of oppressing them? You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Depending on the situation of the hired worker, he could be going back home to children who are crying from hunger pains. Now, I've done some health fasts for like two days at a time. I've never had pain in my stomach from hunger. 
but I've been assured by brothers who have suffered hunger that there is a pain, a physical pain in the stomach. Now, I don't know how many of these workers would go and they would cry out over their own pain, but I'll tell you what, you have your children crying out in pain as you put them to bed at night, knowing that your boss is playing games with your finances. You can bet I would be crying out to God for my children if they are in pain. This passage says the poor cry out to God and he hears them. So understand how the rich operated here in in antiquities as well. They were fantastically luxurious in their living. This is a shame-honor culture. So when you can live luxurious, you are bringing honor. Oh, look at how he lives. Look at what he eats. This is a man who has arrived. So they were fantastically luxurious in the way they lived, their lifestyle. Do you know what else they were fantastically luxurious in? In their charity. They would build huge buildings, and those buildings would have an inscription, and that inscription would be their name. So you gather all kinds of wealth, you live large, you get honor. You gather all kinds of wealth, you build big buildings, you put on an inscription, you get honor. Loving the poor, this isn't about love, this is about honor. In fact, loving the poor, getting involved with them, uh, walking to them to their court case to help them through a a DWI or or whatever problems they've had, uh, boy, you get associated with them. That's not honor. In antiquities, charity was not about love. It was about bringing honor upon yourself. So opulence, honor. Opulent charity, honor. Love, eh, nothing to do with it. So I would say this to Americans today. Do not think yourself above hand-to-mouth living. Do not lie to yourself and say, I'm sorry, I'm better than that. Number one, you are neglecting the gifts that God has blessed you with. You were born in 2000, uh, I'm sorry, you are born in the 20th century or the 21st century in the greatest country in the world. There's a couple of blessings there. We live at the greatest time in history and we were born in the greatest country in history economically. That could all change really quick. Also, believing that somehow down in your heart, you know, I'm sorry, I'm just better than that, will lead to an uncaring arrogance that mistreats the poor. So be very careful because the cries of those that we mistreat reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. The uh, personal indulgences of the rich fattened their heart in luxury. It fattened their hearts. This is a heart issue. Verses 5 and 6, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. We'll get to the definition of what the Bible's word there is for self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now, what's interesting is, what is that day of slaughter? Is it their own slaughter? Had they made themselves the fattened calf to be slaughtered? Or is the slaughter what they did to the, to the righteous in verse number 6? 
Uh, Verse 6 goes on to say, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. What is self-indulgence? Looking up the Greek dictionary for this word, it's to indulge oneself beyond the bounds of propriety, to live luxuriously or voluptuously. I like living voluptuously. That's a good word. Conspicuous consumption. When, when you just consume to be seen consuming, you've got to have the biggest this, the best that, and everybody can see. Their sin is twofold. First, they are conspicuous consumers. Second, they not only do not help the poor, they abuse the poor. And, and a case of murder may be cited here. It says you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Now, when it says the righteous person, it sounds like we're talking to one person. And so some people think, oh, um, this is talking to, James is writing to his audience and he knows about a murder that has happened somewhere among these churches. That could be. The problem with that is he's writing to the scattered tribes of Israel. He's writing to a very broad audience. So he could be talking about the righteous person just simply as a case study. You know, the righteous one is the kind of person you have murdered. So first, think about not helping the poor, and then we'll think about murder. Think about just having a cold attitude towards people in need. Let me ask you a question. What was the great sin of Sodom? You remember Sodom and Gomorrah? What was the great sin? Just answer in your mind. And if you answered homosexuality, you're wrong, at least according to Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Now, homosexuality was a sin problem that is very notable in Sodom, so much so that we call homosexuality sodomy today. But listen to what Ezekiel says was the great sin of Sodom. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Does that describe the United States of America? Does that describe the Graham household or your household? This is the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excessive food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Helping the poor. Sounds like it's important. (laughs) And then we have the idea of murder. Thinking of powerful people getting away with murder because they were influential and the victim was a nobody. And whether this murder was withholding food to the point, and again, when, you're, when, when, when there's a lot of hunger and malnutrition, death rates do increase. Uh, you know, when, when, I, when I went to visit uh, you know, my, my, my friends in South Africa and, 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 and Zimbabwe, the death rates you know, from, from COVID seem to be a lot higher. Uh, you'd have three and four people die in one week in a small church of 30 people. And, and so, uh, so perhaps, it's a, perhaps the death is, is from the fraud of withholding wages, or perhaps the death was orchestrated through legal manipulation. Uh, I want to read from uh, an apocryphal book. The, uh, the Apocrypha is a collection of historical works. It's not the Bible. But there's history there. 
And there's wisdom literature, Jewish wisdom literature. So this would be more like reading a commentary or a devotional than reading scripture. But I want to read from this because it talks about the righteous man who ends up getting murdered. And just listen to the pattern of how wicked people behave toward the righteous. Let us lie and wait for the righteous man because he is inconvenient to us and opposes our actions. He reproaches us for sins against the law and accuses us of sins against our training. He professes to have the knowledge of God and calls himself a child of the Lord. He became to us a reproof of our thoughts. The very sight of him is a burden to us because his manner of life is unlike that of others and his ways are strange. We are considered by him as something base and he avoids our ways as unclean. He calls the last end of the righteous happy and boasts that God is his father. Let us see if his words are true and let us test what will happen at the end of his life. For if the righteous man is God's child, he, God, will help him and will deliver him from the hand of his adversaries. Let us test him with insult and torture so that we may find out how gentle he is and make trial of his forbearance. Let us condemn him to a shameful death, for according to what he says, he will be protected. That's the attitude of the wicked. The righteous is an inconvenience to us. Their very lifestyle judges our lifestyle. His choices judge our choices. We don't like that. Let's put this righteous guy to the test. Let's torture him and see how gentle he is. Uh, let's, let's sentence him to death and see if his God delivers him. Rich people, like us, need to beware our actions when righteous people avoid our activities. When righteous people see us doing something, they say, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't participate in that. Be very careful that there doesn't develop in us a root of bitterness rather than a root of repentance. Someone declines your activity for moral reasons. That stings. Who is he to judge my activity? Uh, there can be a spirit of vengeance. If you're in a position of power, you can have this passive-aggressive activity of withholding pay. Of punishing him because you're above him in some way. Or active aggression. Uh, in this case, legal prosecution. And let me tell you, we are fast approaching a day where biblical truth will be equal to hate speech. You will be able to entrap a righteous person in his words and let the system do the rest for you. You might even be able to defend your, your, your participation in his demise as rather passive and benign. I just told the truth. He preached Romans 1, verses 26 and 27. I can't help it that that's illegal. Verse number 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person he does not resist you. So the point of today's text is that God is judge, a judging God. He is standing at the door, as we'll see in verse 9 next week. This ought to influence how you handle wealth and how you treat the poor. You need to avoid fattening your heart with luxuries. You need to avoid disregarding the poor, or even worse, taking advantage of the poor. 
be very careful to image your God. How generous has he been to you? What then does he expect of you in terms of generosity? What do you think would honor him in the world? Do you lift weights? Your weight set can tell me a lot about whether or not you truly do. Are you using your wealth for God's glory? If so, there will be money moving around. It won't be sitting in corrosion. These are the last days. We don't have all the answers, but we have a lot more answers than Abraham had when he left his homeland to obey God. Isaac, Jacob, David, even the prophets and the apostles. This is the last age. Other ages looked for the time when God would visit mankind. Jesus did that. Other ages looked for the time when God would give his spirit. The Holy Spirit came. These things have happened. And there is nothing more to look forward to other than the coming of Jesus. To close all things down. To judge the wicked. To renew the world. And to renew those who are in Jesus Christ. Are you destined for judgment or are you destined for renewal when that happens? How you are living can tell us. It can tell you. I do want to emphasize in closing that this passage is not teaching that you are saved by helping the poor. That you are saved by giving any amount of money to anything. Nothing in this passage or in any passage teaches that you can earn eternal life. This is a passage that warns us of sin. It warns us of the sin of living in luxury. It warns us of the sin of not loving the poor. This passage teaches us that God's people do good things. And if you aren't doing good things, if in fact you're rather callous and wicked, then that might be a sign you do not even know God. And you need to examine this. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this was not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Today's passage is about that. The works that God has prepared His children to do, that we should be walking in them. And if you aren't walking in those good works, if in fact you are walking in evil works toward the poor, you really need to examine your relationship with God at the very foundational level. Are you saved? Are you his child? It's a warning to the rich. You cannot fatten your hearts on luxury while taking advantage of the poor in the process. Let's close in a word of prayer, and then I'll ask the deacons to come and to uh, share the, the Lord's table with us here. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for how you have blessed us, uh, not just in being in America in the year 2023, uh, but, Father, in giving your Son to us, in giving yourself to us for all of eternity. Uh, Father, the riches that we sometimes hoard after and, and, and idolatra, uh, idolize, Lord, they're just such cheap, pathetic substitutes for you. Lord, we will soon die and leave all of the things and all of the money. But you, Father, are eternal and satisfying and deep. 
God, I pray that you would bring our hearts to a state of repentance. God, I pray that you would give us spiritual wisdom to know how to manage money. Lord, to be wise for the future, as the book of Proverbs says that the wise will do, but Father, to also show a faith and stewardship in the resources you have given. Lord, might our gold and silver be well polished from being good stewards and putting to good use for your kingdom and for your will. Father, might we not have so many clothes that they just sit around getting moth-eaten. Might we not have so many toys and properties that they just get neglected. Help us, Father, to be good stewards of our lives and of our resources. I pray that you would teach each one in this room what that means. Father, we ultimately would like for our lives to look more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, who did not burden himself down with materialism, who used his riches for the gospel, for ministry, and gave his life to it. Father, we also want to stop and remember the ultimate, ultimate sacrifice that Jesus Christ gave. Not just in giving his life, but in becoming sin for us. He who knew no sin took on the shame and and the filthy reputation that we deserve. And Father, he suffered and died becoming sin for us. He asked that we would remember him, remember this work. And so God, we pause to do so today. I pray that you would bless us, God, to be worshiping Jesus as we remember in his name. Amen. Ask the men to come and to...